that enough scraping? Does that sound good? All right. I think I got it right. I, got, I stay behind here, right? All right. Good. Thank you, Patty. Okay. So a couple of things stuck out to me in uh, what Jay was talking about at the beginning. Uh, first, uh, you, you, I don't know if you heard about the, the bomb scare that on Pearl Street this week. Uh, the, the, an interesting side point to that, Jay and I were actually on Pearl Street when that happened. We were actually meeting with someone down there and sitting out on the street and we noticed a police car come up across the street with its lights on and then another one and then the guy got out with some yellow tape and we're just kind of watching that going on and we were about done so we got up and we left and found out what was going on right after that as we saw more and more cars coming around and uh, Jay had in fact walked down the street likely walking past the three items that were supposedly uh, the, <clears throat> the objects of interest in the whole thing. It, it's a reminder um, and maybe not a fun reminder, but it is a reminder that, uh, that we don't control all the details of life, do we? Um, we, were, we were there because we had an appointment, feeling like we were controlling, but we can't control every piece of it. And uh, we make ourselves crazy when we try, but just to, just to trust God. Um, sometimes we find ourselves in hard scenarios, and sometimes it's nothing. Uh, but uh, living in fear is not an answer. So, so let's continue to wrestle with the reality of our day uh, and, and the reality of this place and in this time and try to be that, uh, that steady presence. But uh, that's, that's a theme that will come up again and again. But I also want to talk about the cats briefly. I feel a little invested in, uh, in uh, Matt and Kinsley's cat, cat because Gable cat sat a couple of weeks ago. He stayed there over the weekend and sent pictures of this cat. So I feel invested in this and very hopeful they get the cat down. As well as last week uh, when I had a chance to travel to Florida, I got to hang out with my two cats, which I very much miss now since I'm not there and Ariel is missing them because she can't see them. But it's interesting how, how God has blessed us to, to be able to have these relationships with the animals. And, and, and it, I think it reminds us of the original purpose, um, not to stray too far down this road, but, but God created this amazing world and then he created us and told us, gave us dominion over the animals. Not to command them, not to force them, not to be cruel to them, but to make their lives good, to care for them, to care about them. And it's, it's sad sometimes when you see how we have failed in that charge that God has given us. Um, but, uh, but it is also an amazing blessing when we do carry out that role well and the companionship we can have with what God has made. And anyway... That, that's just from the introduction. That's not even what I'm going to talk about today. So let's, let's pray and get to it. Father in heaven, we ask your Holy Spirit to be with us today. Because what, what I'm going to talk about today could feel a little bit unsettling if we're not anchored in the right spot. So help us above all things today to make sure we are 
We are anchored in the right spot so that we can be the people you need us to be in this day, in this place, in this time. It does us no good to be the best Christians from 100 years ago or 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. That's over. We have to be what you've called us to be right now. Help us to know what that is and to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to go back to the book of John, but we're just going to start there today. And we're really not going to spend that much time specifically on the passage that we're starting with. We'll spend more time on it in the days ahead because there is an interesting discussion that develops and we need to understand that discussion. But today, I just want to address one piece of it. And in a sense, uh, where we're starting today, I hope that at least in the early going here, you're going to discover that you have more than just a little sympathy for the people that were uncomfortable with Jesus. And in fact, you might find that you have a lot in common with the people who were uncomfortable with Jesus. And that's going to be a challenge to us. So I want to start in verse 16. It says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. All right, doing what things? Well, the previous story we talked about a few weeks ago was the story of when Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. And after the man is healed, he says to him, you remember this? Take up your mat and go home. So he does, he picks it up and carries it, and this creates a problem because you're not, that was against the Sabbath rules. You were not supposed to carry a burden on the Sabbath. Well, why in the world do you ever end up with a rule like that? Well, okay, here's how rules happen. There's a great principle or a great value out there that we want to see established and held up. And, and so we acknowledge this value. And in the context of what's happening here, it's the Ten Commandments, the reality of remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and the importance of the Sabbath. So, okay, what does it mean to keep it holy? All right, so we start to explore the idea. What does it mean to keep it holy? Well, it talks specifically about not working, so let's try to avoid working. Okay, well, what do we mean by working? Well, let's see. Working means, you, you see how this process, we still do this, right? As we try to apply realities to our lives. And so we come up with, with ways to support the rule, and then eventually we establish detailed rules because we get in arguments about what's okay and what's not okay. And most of these things start from an actual positive place. We want to honor God's law. But they end up with sometimes kind of crazy rules. Because there's always the people out there trying to break the rule. There's always the people out there trying to get around the rule. One of my favorites that happened to us uh, specifically as Adventists, and those of you that are a little older will, will recall this, it was, a, uh, it was a stated reality, not just within Adventism, but also in a lot of Christianity in general, that theaters were not good places to go. And there were reasons for this from previous generations. There were things that went on there. There was questionable amusements. There was, there was often in these places drinking and other kinds of things. But that word just kind of hung on and carried forward. And so by the time I came along, my generation was told, 
you're not allowed to go into a movie theater because that's what a theater was by the time I came along. And that was a hard, fast rule that we all broke. But it was a hard, fast rule. But here was the irony of the scenario. You see, that rule was created because there were questionable things that went on in theaters. And you could even say to that point, even in the kinds of movies in the time when I was young, if you stayed away from there, you were probably better off. There were certain exposures you didn't need. So that rule was there for that purpose. But here's the ironic thing that happened. One day somebody invented a device called the VCR. You ever heard of those? Yeah. And it was the neatest thing. All you had to do was wait about a year. And then that movie that you couldn't go see in a theater because theaters are bad, you could bring into your house and turn your living room into the venue of questionable entertainment instead of someplace down the road. See what happens to us when we get caught in the rule game? Well, this is what happens in this story. They're caught in the rule game. And because he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath, he's breaking the rule. And the man says, well, the guy that healed me told me to do this. Well, he, Jesus was already in enough trouble for healing on Sabbath. And, and come on, we can understand that, right? You got six days. Why do you have to do it on Sabbath? Even if healing is your job, why do you have to do it on Sabbath? Just wait till the sun goes down. It's easy to understand how we get caught in these traps, isn't it? But Jesus healed on the Sabbath. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. Now, this is a very important point, and this is a very important point related to Sabbath that we need to come to understand, and we'll develop this more in a bigger way later on, but one of the realities about Sabbath is that it's a gift that God gave to us, and it is a gift that commemorates what is the rarest thing for God to ever do. You know what the rarest thing for God to ever do is? The rarest thing for God to ever do is rest, is stop. So, so we have the Bible account. In six days, the Lord creates the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rests and he makes the seventh day the commemoration of creation and, and the reality of our lives and our existence. We, we acknowledge that by accepting for ourselves the rest that he took. And he says to us, you don't have to go nonstop. You don't have to never quit. I want you to stop every seventh day. I want you to rest. Can you think of a prescription that would be more effective for the mental and physical health of Americans right now than if every seventh day they just took a day off? I really can't come up with anything that would be better for us than that. But ironically, this thing that we desperately need, probably desperately want, we won't take. That's legalism. <laughs> really? All right. Kill yourself then, I guess. Just stop. Just stop for a day. God promises it'll work out. Stop. Anyway, so, so 
so here's the dynamic and, and this reality that God stopped for a day gave us that rest. There's one other time that God stops for a day. And I'll just hint at this. We can't talk about it at length. But what day does Jesus die? Rise on Friday. What day does he rise? Sunday. What day does he rest? Sabbath. Same deal. At the completion of creation, he rests and commemorates the day. At the completion of salvation, he rests commemorates the day this is this is his pattern but you notice in this in this pattern it's unusual and Jesus points it out here in his defense Jesus said my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working but that doesn't go over well verse 18 for this reason they tried all the more to kill him not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. Now there's been a lot of arguments uh, through time and in different places. What is the exact nature of Jesus? How exactly was he? What was his relationship with God? And the early church argued about this for years, for generations. And you can see it's kind of a, a natural debate to get caught into. What is the relationship between the Father and the Son. And this raged on for a long time. But there are those who to this day will say, well, Jesus himself never claimed to be God. That was just something that was put on him later on by Christians or was written back into the story. Well, that is a tempting approach for some people who don't actually want to take on everything that Christianity demands. But I don't think it holds up very well in the context of, of what Scripture actually says. And it certainly doesn't hold up in the context of how the Jewish leaders perceived Jesus. Because in their mind, he was very clearly claiming divinity. Now, why would this be so hard? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 6. If there was a passage, a section of scripture that was more fundamental to the Jewish self-perception and, and what they were about as a people, it would be hard, hard to find anything more important than this. In fact, Jesus will call this, or at least the piece that comes after this, the greatest commandment in the law. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 you may be more familiar with it. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But here's verse 4. And if you were Jewish, you always started with verse 4. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, a couple of things to note in this. If you're looking at your Bible there and you see it, you will see where it says, the Lord. Do you see how Lord there is in all capital letters. The last three letters may be smaller in a smaller font, but they're capital letters. Do you see that? Okay, whenever you see that in the Old Testament, what's actually happening here is in the original manuscript, in the Hebrew manuscript, in that spot is the name of God. Now, we don't know exactly what that is. But it's something along the lines of Yahweh or something like that. 
traditionally, it used to be Jehovah. Remember that term? So whenever your Bible has that the Lord in those letters, know that in the original, trans, in the original manuscript, that is literally the name of God. But out of respect for the name of God, the Jews would not say the name. And out of respect for that, the tradition of translation has taken the form of, in that spot, your Bible will say the Lord. If you get a really old Bible, it'll say Jehovah there. But it's not the title, it's his name. So you could read it this way. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Now, part of the whole dynamic here, and this even develops, even, it's even talked about to this day, the three great monotheistic faiths. See, most other people were worshiping uh, multiple gods. Polytheism was the norm. You worshiped a god for crops, and a god for fertility, and a god for weather, and a god for this, and a god for that. But when God established Israel, he said, no. I am the one God. I am the most high God, often you'll hear him say. That's kind of funny to us, right? But what he's doing is he's claiming the place above all the other gods, the most high God, the God of heaven and earth. There's a completeness there, and he's trying to reveal himself in the Old Testament in the context of people who have a polytheistic notion of God. So it became very central to the understanding of the faith, if you were a Jew, that God is one. And any claim different from that is blasphemy. Let me take you to another passage, Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34 beginning in verse 12. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god for the Lord, there it is again, his name, for Yahweh, for Jehovah, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. That's quite a passage, isn't it? The primary reason that he's giving to not associate with the people of the land is because they will pervert your faith. They will cause you to worship other gods. But your God, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I think in some ways uh, we've, we've lost the heart essence meaning of the word jealous. Someday maybe we'll spend some time on that. But, but it is not inappropriate to have an intensity of emotion towards someone you love greatly who has promised to love you back. Jealousy in and of itself is not wrong. It's natural. Now, sometimes what it causes us to do is wrong. But this desire for connected intimacy is something God has put in us and in fact is something he feels towards us and that is why it hurts his heart when we turn away from him to other things 
So this is context. Let me give you another passage here. And this is what all of these Jewish leaders know at a very deep level. This one is, is almost unsettling. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Now I want you to think about this passage in the, con in the context of Jesus. And in the context of Jesus saying, my father is always working and so am I. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord, there's the name again, your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. There's the reference to the first commandment. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Okay, so you are a Yahweh-fearing Jewish believer in the time of Jesus. And you have been taught that even if someone comes along and does a bunch of miracles but then suggest something that contradicts your understanding of hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. One. If anyone comes along and threatens that, what are you to do? Number one, you reject what they say. Number two, you turn away. And number three, as soon as you can, you kill them. Just honoring the Bible, right? Starting to feel a little sympathy for them. Starting to understand a little bit what a challenge the reality of Jesus was. Now the interesting thing is it wasn't so much a challenge to the marginal believers. Because it was easy for them to go along with the momentum of the good works he's doing. But for those who were really faithful, who were really schooled, who really understood the word. then it's so easy to look at Jesus and say, wait a minute, this is a test from God. And, and remember this, there were lots of messiahs who were popping up around this time. Listen to this next part. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other. Do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death. And when the hands of all, and then the hands of all the people. Stone them to death because they tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Do you understand now what happened to Stephen? It's a different context, isn't it, when you read it here? Then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. 
And that's not the end of it. The, the chapter goes on. If any town begins to worship another, another god, the town itself must be destroyed. Now, obviously, they didn't hold to this very well, did they? Because throughout the history of Israel is idolatry and all kinds of things. And they didn't carry this out the way it's described here. But once you got down the road, after the Babylonian captivity that finally broke the, the Israelites out of this tendency to fall into idolatry and worship other gods, they doubled down. The reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah led to a doubling down on the reality that we're not going to let anything that isn't singularly about the one God get in here. And they built a very strong castle around their faith. Then Jesus came. Paul says an interesting thing in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Whoops, that's 2 Timothy. Here we go. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. says, For there is one God. This is echoing back to Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Now, you could read that and be comfortable with it in the context of what we talked about because it seemingly sets Jesus at a different place. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. You could almost read that and be comfortable. You could say, yeah, he had a special role, but he's not equal. But you see, that's, that's just one of the places where Paul is addressing this. And Paul himself will be persecuted for the same kinds of things that they came after Jesus for, for the same kinds of claims. If you want to know for sure how they came to view Jesus, it's hard to see it more clearly than in John chapter 20 beginning in verse 24. This is after the resurrection. As you recall, Jesus has appeared to the disciples, but one of them was missing. Do you remember this story? Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, "Put your, By the way, that, this peace be with you, I, I really appreciated what Pastor Jay constructed from the passage last Sabbath, talking about peace and putting all of that together. That was beautiful. Anyway, 
back to this. Um, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now notice what Thomas says here. And maybe you've blown over this because you didn't really think about it in this context. But listen to what he says. He says, my Lord and my God. Now, we might pass that off in our day to say, oh, well, he's just using a figure of speech, right? Because you hear that all the time. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my God. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. He's literally calling Jesus God, his God. Now, if Jesus wasn't, what should he have said next? Uh, no, too far. Don't call me that. And we know that this happens, right? Because from reading in Revelation or in other places where people encounter angels, in the book of Revelation, John bows himself down before the angel. What does the angel say? Don't do that. I am with you. I am among you. We are worshipers of God. So, so we know from the Bible that if someone inappropriately bows down to a heavenly being who is not God, the heavenly being says, don't do this. But Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, he says this, verse 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then we go into that next section that describes John's purpose in the book. Verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the whole purpose, John says, for me writing this book is so that you will reach the point of the confession that Thomas makes. But the hard thing for you is going to be you're not going to get to see him like Thomas did. You're going to have to come to this conviction without seeing and what is the conviction that Jesus is the Messiah of prophecy, the Son of God, and therefore, as it made the Pharisees of the time uncomfortable, himself God. It would be unsettling if all of your background told you, watch out for anyone who would make a claim like this. It suits our way of thinking to think that there is a singular reality that is truth. Someone discovered it in a previous age, and all I have to do is figure out exactly what it is and believe it as hard as I can for the rest of my life. There's a term for this. It's called orthodoxy. It's about celebrating the genius and the experience of the past and assuming that the fullness of understanding was achieved by another people at another time and all I have to do is lay hold of it and hang on to it and never let anything pry me away from it. 
It's tempting. It feels secure, doesn't it? It feels solid. Because so many of these things from the past have been tested over time. And so many people now say such crazy things. But there's a problem here. And it's exposed well in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. This is Jesus talking to his disciples the last night. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me and what he will make from me what he will make known to you. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell the Spirit and he's going to teach you things and you're going to learn them as you go along. Because it's a pretty easy point, right? The disciples didn't get it yet. At this point, Jesus is about to ascend and they're going to say to him, is it now that you establish the kingdom? They still don't get it. And even when the Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts 2, they still don't get it completely because now, yes, they're sharing with everybody who is already Jewish, but they're not really going anywhere else. And, and somehow the gospel leaks into among the Samaritans. But that's okay, I guess, because Jesus talked to the Samaritans. But it takes a vision where a sheet comes down from heaven and it's filled with unclean animals and Peter is told to kill and eat for him to be willing to go into the home of a Gentile and talk about Jesus. And it's only because the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles that they're even willing to baptize them. And they will argue about whether or not it's okay for Gentiles to just join the church as they are. Shouldn't they have to go through everything else? They still don't have full understanding. And let me suggest to you, we still don't have full understanding. All these years later. Now, this is an unsettling notion because we put great confidence in knowing truth. Unfortunately, I think we put too much confidence in knowing truth as opposed to knowing the truth. We'll come to that in a second. But we put great confidence in it. But, but now, I want you to know that if you really go back to the spirit of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they had a slightly different twist on this. Yes, they were about truth. They were about discovery. They were about Bible study. They were about knowing. But you know what their term for truth was? Present truth. And here's what they meant by that. The Holy Spirit is continuing to reveal truth. And he has revealed truth in our day. What were the truths that they felt as though had been revealed to them in their day? Well, 
things about the sanctuary, the things about the 2300 days, things about the Sabbath. These were present truths. And we have received them. And we gratefully receive them from the ones that have gone before, who are giants of the faith, who walked with God every day of their life. But there were some other things that were not realities in their day that are realities in ours. And unfortunately, they don't have the answer for every question we face. So the challenge we have to wrestle with is what is the difference between present truth and orthodoxy? You see, because our tendency is to turn what was present truth for them into orthodoxy for us. As long as we do exactly everything they figured out exactly right, then we're good. We don't have to answer any questions in our own time. Okay, that's denying the whole concept of present truth, isn't it? That's past truth. Now, that's not to say present truth doesn't include past truth. But does it stop there? This is where it gets uncomfortable, right? I mean, by nature, I'm conservative. I don't like running out there. I'm not at the front of every cause. That's not my nature. But is it possible that I can miss a moving of the Holy Spirit because it's different from what I've known? Well, let's look at the Pharisees. They were orthodox. They had texts. But they missed Jesus. See, here's the problem. Creeping creedalism, if you'll let me invent that word, leads to persecution. See, this is the irony. Our founders say we have no creed but the Bible. And that's a great phrase. But the problem is, at some point we have to interpret it, right? And once we do that, we start forming creed. Whether we call it that or not. What is a creed? A creed is a system of beliefs and understandings that guides our life of faith. And as soon as we begin to have a life of faith, and as soon as we become a worldwide church, and we're trying to hold together in a coherent, singular theology, it gets important that we define that theology. And then we start arguing about points of that theology, so we refine our refinement of that theology. This is creeping creedalism. And the problem is it reaches the point where we say, no, you don't believe this, therefore we, we throw you out. Okay, well, that's a biblical concept, right? If you've got people in the church who don't believe in Jesus, well, what, why are you here? This is the people who believe in Jesus. Okay, well, maybe we can agree on that point, but, but as we keep going down the list, where do we draw the line for what you get thrown out for and what you don't get thrown out for? And creedalism has a way of creeping and growing and, and reaching a point where if you're not orthodox, you're not one of us. But here's the deal. Yes, creeping creedalism leads to persecution, but creeping compromise leads to collapse. 
If we just say, oh, well, it's too hard. I guess there are no lines. I guess there are no boundaries. Anything goes. Okay, welcome to main, mainline Protestantism in our day. Wonderful people who have no idea what they believe. I, I heard it said really well once. Mainline Protestants have both feet firmly planted in the air. There's just nothing under there. Do we trust the word or not? Unfortunately, that leads to verbal inerrantists versus those who say the Bible doesn't matter at all. Isn't there another road? Is that what we have to do? You see, if we just compromise on everything, the whole thing falls apart. But if we lock ourselves up in creedalism, then we become the persecutors of Jesus. This is why this is an unsettling topic, right? There is an answer to this. But it's a hard one to execute. And the answer is this. The church has to be built on one foundation. And that foundation is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We have to build on that point. <clears throat> in all of our hope, <clears throat> in all of our our desire and longing has to come back to that singular reality. Our confidence com can't come back to the fact that we've figured out all truth. It can't. Because then anyone who arises and, and introduces something new, we must either destroy them or we must throw away everything we've believed and follow them. We can't chase that. Sometimes to deal with it, we try to kind of make it less important. But C.S. Lewis, he has a, a great quote on this. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Okay, if it's true, if, if Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then that is the most important fact in all of reality, and we need to build everything about our lives on it. If it's not true, then the whole thing is kind of silly, right? So how do we find our way through? John 14, verse 6. <clears throat> Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay, that's got to sit at the very base of it all. You think you have a knowledge of the God of heaven, but do not have a knowledge of Jesus, you are deceived. Because Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He says that he is 
the way, not the one who shows the way. He is the way. He is the truth, not the one who tells us truth. He does do that, but he is the truth. And he is the life. It has to center in Jesus. Now, when I say that, you know the questions that come in your mind, and I know the questions that come in mine. But what it tells us is, I've got to spend more of my energy and effort pouring into this reality of Jesus, who he is, his constant presence in my life, the presence of the Holy Spirit that leads me in my life. I've got to know about him from here. I've got to know about him from my knees, from prayer. I've got to know about him from walking in the world and seeing the faces. You remember what he says? If you've done it to the least of these, you've done it for me. I've got to know him in my life. Jesus was more than the Pharisees expected. Jesus is more than you expect.